This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I think it's important that we just keep shedding light in these dark places. And if people don't understand it, good. You shouldn't understand it. You're seeing something new something you've probably never seen. And I hope people can take a moment to just stay with it, the story, and find some compassion and learn something about the others and about this, I think, very unique point of view that hasn't really been expressed very often throughout our film history. Hello and welcome to The Awardists from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Clarissa Cruz, EW's Executive Editor. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Josh Rothkopf, EW's Senior Movies Editor. Hi, Josh. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Today, we're going to be talking about the best director race. I, this one's, I, I think there's so many good ones to talk about. Um, who, who are you liking this year, Josh? Oh, there's, there are so many. I mean, the one that jumps to mind for me, just as a personal favorite, is Paul Thomas Anderson, whose Licorice Pizza, I think, is one of his, it's both one of his warmest films and I think one of his most ambitious films. Warm in the sense that it's, it's nostalgic to, to, to a degree, and it's about growing up in the valley in the early 70s, as he himself did. I think these characters are slightly older than he was, but it it feels just as romantic as something like Phantom Thread did. It's just a really beautiful coming of age story. uh, And I I would love to finally see him win a Best Director Oscar, which uh, it's amazing to me that someone like Paul Thomas Anderson hasn't won a Best Director. You, You liked Licorice Pizza, didn't you? I totally, I loved it. I thought it was so nice. It wasn't what I expected. I wasn't even sure what to expect when I saw it. I think I I saw it kind of early on. And I was just so pleasantly surprised with how warm and engaging it was. And I, you know, I'm going to lean on you for this part because Josh um, did a fantastic story for our February issue um, with Paul Thomas Anderson and specifically about his LA set movies and Licorice Pizza is one of them, which is which is the reason why we did this. But can you talk a little bit about his sense of place and, and his tie to LA and specifically the Valley? Absolutely. It's kind of interesting. Paul Thomas Anderson has become, I think, over five films, a real chronicler of LA, but not the kind of glamorous Hollywood style LA that you might get from a comedy or something. Um, but but the real L.A., both the L.A. of the Valley and East Los Angeles and some of the industrial areas of Los Angeles, he loves driving at night. And so if you consider movies like Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, Inherent Vice, and Licorice Pizza, you're talking about five really vivid pictures of what it means to live in Los Angeles. And they all approach that subject in different ways. He also, as as a filmmaker, he's kind of like come around to really owning his Los Angeles-ness. At the beginning of his career, Paul Thomas Anderson told me that he was a little embarrassed about being from LA. And he kind of wished that he was from somewhere more worldly. But he he's come around to this idea that if you're making a film about a place that you know well and maybe even live in, it will have more authenticity. 
it will be more grounded and you can't really fake that feeling. Audiences will know it. He referenced John Hughes's Chicago films like The Breakfast Club and Home Alone. The idea of like these, a director who really knows a certain milieu, a suburban Chicago in John Hughes's case and LA in Paul Thomas Anderson's case. So I watched something like Licorice Pizza and it's such a love letter to the Valley and and the places that he grew up in and the kind of freedom that was in, in the early 70s. And he recreates a lot of the classic places like Tale of the Cock, which was this old uh, red tablecloth restaurant that was big in Studio City and a lot of other locations. It's a real pitch perfect evocation, the kind of thing that can't be done by just anyone, someone who really needs to live it and feel it. And I'm telling you, PTA could just go and go talking about LA. He loves that subject. Another thing this will segue, I think, into our next best director potential is in Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson really does a great job directing two relative unknowns to excellent performances. There's Cooper Hoffman, who is Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. He plays the main character, Gary. And then there's Alana Heim from the band Heim. And, you know, maybe you know the Heim videos, which Anderson also shot, but she now does this incredible dramatic performance in this movie, really carrying Licorice Pizza almost on her shoulders entirely. She's dynamite in the film. And I feel like that's ultimately one of the real strengths of Paul Thomas Anderson. He's, his way with actors, his way, especially these classic performances he's gotten from Daniel Day-Lewis, etc. Another director that we could talk about in this regard is Jane Campion and The Power of the Dog. If you look at that film and you consider Kirsten Dunst, Benedict Cumberbatch, Jesse Plemons, Cody Smith-McPhee, the entire cast, I think all could be in the running in their brackets for acting awards. And I think that's a tribute to this masterful directing by Campion. I know you love that film, right? Right. I Close. love that film. I love her. And I just, I just <laughs> think she has such, such a way. And I was so excited even just hearing about this film the first time and knowing that she was going to have something this season. Cause it had been like what, 12 years. 12 years. Movie. Made film, yeah. Yeah. So she, she definitely picks her projects and, and, um, you know, I, I love the piano and was so excited to see what this was. And then when I finally saw it, I was like, man, this is just a masterwork. And the, the performances that she's gotten out of every single one of those actors are career bests, I think. And so I'm, I'm, I, I think she's a front runner in this race. I think she, she'll, um, she'll do really well. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just one of those movies that from the performances to the look of it to just the way that she treated the material, I think was such an original touch. And so her, um, and, and if that's not something that makes a best director, I don't know what is. Exactly. Um, and I just like, it would, it would have been enough if she had just come back after 12 years and made just a regular film, but it's, I think maybe the best film of her career. I mean, it's, it's really that good. And the command of the visual language and the performances and, and just the, the arc of the storytelling and the way that film kind of makes so many turns, we're not going to spoil it for you, but it's just, it, it's just only a master filmmaker like Campion could have made it. And I think that we should mention a few more of these, these contenders. Another one in terms of, filmmaking command, but maybe in a slightly different way, I would say is Denis Villeneuve and Dune. Dune, I think, at least for me, was the first time I felt I was really back at the movies. The grandeur that it provides, the size and just all the crafts involved in it, the cinematography, the, you know, the, the art direction, the production design, the costuming, the visual effects, and these performances, which I think are all excellent. But 
this is more of a, like it's a sci-fi epic and a vision from someone who has clearly loved Dune since he was a boy. And I think that that will make him recognized in this bracket. I think Hollywood wants to recognize this huge gamble, which paid off both artistically and commercially. It's one of the biggest films of the year. I think it probably is the the biggest box office grosser of the year among the films that are seriously being considered for Oscars. There are a few that are more than this, but what, you like Dune, didn't you? I did. I mean, I, I loved just, I loved how it looked. You know, this yeah. is some, I, I'm, I don't think I was a target audience for this movie, but I was completely engaged. And, and like you, I found it to be one of those films that really signaled being back in the theater. I was really happy I saw it in the theater. And I think it was w- definitely one of the first. And, you know, just just the sound alone, it made it worth it to me. Um, and, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it just it just looked, I, I think it looked so expensive, like in a good way. Like I like it was such a treat for my eyes. Um, I, I, I loved everyone's costumes. I loved everyone's hair. I mean, no, how they is. all had such well-conditioned hair in the middle of a, of a desert, I don't even know. But it was gorgeous, and I think that should be rewarded. Um, all of the below-the-line categories, I think, were, were fantastic. And, you know, it was just – I think um, Denis was just a master. I mean, yeah. again, you know, he did what a director does is put his stamp on this, and it paid off. It's, it's, fun, it's interesting, too, because if you think about it, all three of the films we've mentioned so far – are they detail different different jobs that a director has to some degree. All these directors are great, but if you think about Paul Thomas Anderson and his evocation of a, you know, a place that he knows well, and then Jane Campion with her command of performances, and then Villeneuve building this science fiction world, this universe that we've never been knocked out quite as well by it in any version of Dune ever or any science fiction film. Some people love it that much. Those are all the jobs of the director. I think a fourth job or a fourth director that we could potentially name here would be Kenneth Branagh and Belfast. I feel like that is always going to be part of what a director does, which is make a movie about their growing up. And that's a little like what Paul Thomas Anderson does in Licorice Pizza. But Belfast is also, it's just marked by a real exquisite sense of of place. It takes place during the late 60s and early 70s during the Irish Troubles. And Buddy, who's... um, Jude Hill. He's clearly a stand-in for a young Kenneth Branagh. And it's really about his mother, who is played in the film by Katrina Balfe, who's just wonderful. I feel like that that's another example of a film where, you know, Branagh himself was was nominated for a directing Oscar when when he was uh, 29 years old for Henry V, and that was back in 1989. And so I feel like there's a, there's a good chance that Ampus, which always won't pass up an opportunity to congratulate itself on its own good taste, will nominate him again as a, as a tribute to his longevity and making films as long as he has. Uh, I do think that Belfast deserves it. Some people think it's a, a touch sentimental. I was knocked out by it, and it really has some very strong performances in it, which might be undeniable. Overall, I, I think Leah Greenblatt, our chief critic, said it up beautifully. 
to me that it's the least troubled movie about the troubles. <laughs> I think that's that's fair, <laughs> you know. What what are your thoughts on Belfast? I mean, I think any movie that has Jamie Dornan dancing and singing, um, I, I'm all in. And um, between between oh, his, his yeah his performance with, in this and Barb and Star, yeah, is that what you just said, Barb and Star? Yeah. I, I that was one of my favorites, and so to see him sort of singing and, and, and dancing again, I, I loved it. But seriously, um, you know, it, it was it's definitely one of those movies that I could see what. People are responding to. I, it has so much heart. It's very uh, emotional. It, it's very pretty to look at. I, I can see how it's the whole package. Um, but I, I do have other favorites. Um, and the the one I, and you know this. I've been talking it up probably this whole season. <laughs> one of my favorite movies is Lost Daughter, um, and that's directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. And I and I just can't think of a more assured directorial debut than this. Like, I feel like she was so confident and assured and, and made such a beautiful, resonant movie. Um, and, and I, and I, I really, I really love this one. And yeah, yeah, I hope she, I hope she gets filmed. Absolutely. And she certainly deserves it. And I, I, I don't, I can't even remember the last time I saw a directorial debut that, that was this confident. And I know that some of that must be from her, you know, long career as an actor and knowing sets, but she also understands uh, the shape of drama and how to communicate well with her crew and her cast. And I just, it's such an exquisite film. It's, it's so finely wrought. Olivia Coleman, Dakota Johnson, um, the, the entire cast of that, that movie really knocked me out. And I just, it's it's like kind of a quiet explosion of a film. It stayed with me since I've seen it. I think I saw it at one of the fall film festivals. She, I used to live in in, in I used to be neighbors with Maggie and <laughs> in Brooklyn Heights. I missed. We used to run yeah, into that them. fabulous like, apartment that I saw. They saw of hers. Um, yes. Yeah. And the movie, I think, it's sort of a meditation on motherhood, and and so I, so I found I found it super engaging in that way. I mean, I have two kids, and and the things that she explores in that movie are, are things that I don't often see on screen. So sort of like that ambivalence about motherhood and and being torn between the different roles in your life, and 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 the sort of mundane nature, but also horror of caring for children on a daily basis. Um, right. And it's, it's all things that that um, that I that I think were really resonant about that movie but also i felt like she brought her own personal experience into the telling of that tale and i think in in that way it was like you said sort of this this ex quietly explosive movie and um yeah. kind of subversive in the way that it treated um this ambivalence on screen i would i would agree with all that and i feel like the subject like you say that it's a very tricky one this idea of like someone who is perhaps an unnatural mother someone who's not I, I'm, I'm not I don't think I'm spoiling anything here but I'll, it's also worth noting how well Gyllenhaal is modulating between eras and periods of time where she's she has a story that's taking place during the present time in the film with Olivia Coleman and then she has she toggles backwards to flashbacks with a younger Olivia Coleman played by Jesse Buckley and that's um, you know just the wedding those two halves together, weaving really them together. It's it, it's done with such a subtlety, a lot of sophistication in that film. I love all of the performances in it. And just it's a, it's really great filmmaking. And if we're being if we're if we're gonna really be sincere about trying to promote and recognize the work of different kinds of directors. We should have more women directors. We should have more first-time directors. We should have directors of all different shapes and sizes and colors. And I really feel like Maggie Gyllenhaal deserves that recognition. 
Well, speaking of actors turned directors, there are a bunch this season. And I'm thinking of our guest today, Halle Berry, who has her directorial debut with Bruised. And also Rebecca Hall, who directed Passing, which is another uh, movie that is figuring a lot in the awards conversation. Let's talk about that a little bit, um, the sort of actors turned directors. And I talk about this a lot with Halle. I can imagine that all of the things that you learn as an actor, um, you can sort of digest and make that part of your plan when you're being a director, like do all the things that, mm-hmm. that you want to do and, and not do the things that, that pissed you off as an actor <laughs> um, in, when, when, you're, when you're finally in the director's seat. And I, I think there's just something really, I guess, engaging and personal about actors turned directors because they know, they know what it's like to be on the other side. And I feel like they tease out these, these really amazing performances from actors because they know what they went through. Yeah. The argument could be made just by looking at the inverse. You can always tell a film when it's directed by someone who has never acted before. (laughs) I mean, and there are a lot of classic films like that. If you look at someone's work like Stanley Kubrick or Alfred Hitchcock, these are films that are not really about performances per se. They're formal and they're about style and they're brilliant films often. But at the same time, there is something that an actor supplies to um to a film that's a, a human quality and earthiness and actors turn directors usually double down on that. I also think it's worth noting that passing and also Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter and Bruised, Halle Berry's film and Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog have all come from Netflix. And without trying to sound like too much of an ad for Netflix, I will say that that is worth saluting that they are finding a way to have uh, four women directors tell their stories and tell them in a way that's that's true to their visions and not really must with. That, that's got to be significant to some degree. I feel like Netflix is actually having a watershed year this year in terms of the Oscars. They've been in the running many years in a row. I mean, if you think about films like Mank and Roma, but I think this year with The Power of the Dog and, and uh, Lost Daughter especially, they have a stronger shot, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about like before times, and I just remember, maybe this is why that memory is so clear, but I remember leaving the Oscars in 2019 and just sort of someone was making, it looked like an industry person. You never know. I guess we're all industry people if we're, <laughs> we're at the Oscars, but was making a joke about how, you know, Netflix gave a run for her money, but when the actual winners were announced, they they sort of, they came up empty handed. And I think this year, you know, it, like you said, it really is a watershed year and it's and it's for Netflix and and for streamers um you know there's always been that sort of back and forth between the studio productions and and the streamers and i think the tide is starting to shift a little bit because people are getting their entertainment in different ways and le- less and less so at the theater so i think that sort of stranglehold that studios had on awards i think is is loosening um, yeah it's loosening and it's i think we we're no longer having to preface this kind of a conversation with the upstart Netflix or Netflix, this sort of interloper. I think that they have definitely earned a place with consistent quality over a long time at this point. I mean, I don't think that a movie like Mank was ever going to win Best Picture, just given the nature of what it was about. Uh, and I say this as a huge David Fincher fan, but I do think that they have consistently supported a lot of great, great work, especially a marriage story too, which did win Best Supporting Actress for Laura Dern. That's a film I would have thrown 10 Oscars to. That was like Kramer for me. That one, yeah. and Private Life, Happiest Lazaro. They, they've done a lot of 
foreign and domestic films, uh, foreign language, I should say, and they have good taste. And I feel like this year, especially if you look to the films that we've mentioned, they could have a good year. It could be a good night for them. Yeah. I mean, the other streamers too. I mean, Amazon has being of the Ricardos, um, mm-hmm. Bar. I think the love is being spread around a little more <laughs> this year. Than the love is that. being spread around. And also I think it's, it, it does feel like a more traditional Oscar year in the set. And, and, and I think we've talked about this in the past too, but, uh, th- this idea that as opposed to last year, which was what really indie centric, if you think about films like Promising Young Woman and Minari and Nomadland, this year, you have more of a traditional spread of kinds of films. So all the films we've mentioned, The Power of the Dog, but also something like West Side Story or Dune, which is Warner Brothers. Gigantic films and small films, indie films and films made by thousands of people. The quality has you know, happened in all those different spheres. And it really is an embarrassment of riches this year. On that note, we'll be speaking with Halle Berry, the director of Bruise, and she talks a lot about sort of the Netflix effect and how it's sort of changing the way that the journey is when a film comes out from release to reception. She's talking about Bruised, which, as we said, is her directorial debut, and it was number one on Netflix. And so she's going to be joining us after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, Hallie. Thanks for joining us today. Congratulations on Bruce. Thank you. The last time we spoke was earlier in your journey with the movie. And now that it's out in the world, how does it feel to see everyone's reaction to it? It feels really good to get the reaction to the movie, Um, especially the fans. You know, you realize in these moments that you really make movies for people, you know, Um, and it's been so rewarding to have so many people write to me. Thank God for social media. I get to hear an immediate feedback and to hear so many fans feeling like they, they saw themselves reflected. They learned something. They got empowered. They got inspired. You know, um, fight fans have shown up, you know, giving kudos to the fight. And so it feels really good. Was it a relief to you seeing so many people respond to it? It was, yeah, it was a relief. You know, I think we make movies so people see it and having a partner like Netflix, you know, my movie got to go around the world in one second and, you know, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So knowing that so many people tuned in um, and enjoyed it, I think is, you know, really why we do it. So, yeah, that was amazing. This movie, I can imagine, was very physically and emotionally draining to do, not just as an actress, because it's a very challenging role, but also as a director. How did you keep fueling your tank, so to speak, to get the work done on both ends? You know, I, I'm always reminded of a quote um, that Maya Angelou said, and it became so true as I was going through this process. And that is, there's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. 
And so getting this story out of my body, um, performing this character was just something that I had to do. I was obsessed with it from the minute, you know, the journey started and people have asked me, how did you do both? And I was just driven by some otherworldly force, I think, because I had this story inside me that um, was aching and dying to get out of me and a character that I needed to play. You famously broke some ribs in the process of training for this. I can't imagine. I cracked a rib once and I was just immobile for days. I can't imagine breaking them and doing all the physically demanding things that you had to do. What pushed you through that? I think I had trained so hard to play this fighter, you know, for two and a half years that I actually started to embody the real spirit of a real fighter. And that spirit says that there is no quitting. You know, if you see these fighters, they don't stop until the referee says it's over or that bell rings and the bell wasn't ringing and nobody said it was over. So I just knew that I had to keep going. I knew I would lo lose my financing. I knew I would lose Valentina. I knew that it would be the end of this journey that I'd been working so hard for. So I just had to power through. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> what did you do to take care of yourself in between? Because I imagine you would need not just physical recovery time, but just mental self-care time. What did you rely on while shooting to get back into your space? You know, there wasn't a lot of self-care while I was going through this process. It was pretty gnarly. You know, the yeah. days were long. I would probably have four hours of sleep a night if I were lucky. So I can't say there was a lot of self-care going on during the process. It was like I said, that engine was just driving me and going and going and I would not stop. Self-care came sort of after we shot right up until Christmas. So that was a Christmas where I got to go home and finally let it all down. I got really sick when that happened. Um, you know, I started to feel the broken ribs in a way I had never felt them in the entire shooting because my body now knew that it was over and it could finally sort of um, come back to life, if, if you will. People always talk about adrenaline pushing you through. It's real, yeah, yeah. The adrenaline was, was on and popping the whole time, for sure. Can we talk about the character, Jackie Justice? Um, when we first meet her in the movie, her past is a bit mysterious and you sort of have to unravel what happened or what brought her to the place where she's at. Can you speak a little bit about her backstory and the essence of her character? Yeah, Jackie Justice, when we find her, she's pretty disgraced. The unthinkable has happened. She has actually jumped out of the cage, and that's just not what fighters do. Um, and so we find her living a very marginal existence in the beginning. She has um, dashed all of her hopes for the dream that she had of being a championship fighter. She was 10-0 and 0 when she jumped this cage, and she jumped the cage because she got pregnant, unexpectedly pregnant and knew or felt like she didn't want to be a mother and she didn't think she was capable of being a mother because she had no real mothering herself. She didn't think she could give love. She had never gotten it. She was actually um, sexually abused and emotionally abused in her childhood. So she didn't think that she was mother material. So she thought the best thing to do was to leave the child with the dad. And that's just not what women do. So that haunted her, that pain, that guilt, um, that regret haunted her. So the next time she got into the cage, five years later, six years later, she wasn't the same fighter. She was now full of fear, full of guilt. And that fear and guilt caused her, caused her to run. And that's where we find her at the beginning of the movie, deep in that pain, deep in that guilt, uh, feeling unworthy, feeling ashamed, 
uh, filled with a lot of pain and a lot of rage because of what happened to her as a small girl. And fighting was her way through that. And she's no longer fighting. So all of that was just sitting on her when we find her in the beginning of the story. It's so interesting how you're talking about her feeling unworthy to be a mother. I have two kids and what I took from this movie and what I've taken from other movies this season is just these sort of layered and textured interpretations of what a mother is. And I find that, first of all, interesting because there aren't so many stories about motherhood on screen. Um, I feel like ambivalence about motherhood is still kind of a stigma, whereas ambivalence about fatherhood is practically its own genre. Yes, <laughs> true. <laughs> How did you feel about that sort of progression, seeing these kinds of stories on screen? I think it's really important that we as women talk about the ambivalence of being a mother. You know, th this is the white space. These are the stories that haven't really been told and certainly not from our perspective as women. And I think this story offers a unique perspective because it's the perspective of a black woman. And culturally, our lives and our existence are very different than, you know, our white counterpart, our other white mothers. You know, we bring our culture with us and unfortunately our generational trauma with us that's been put upon us since I would say slavery days. So that makes our stories very rich, very deep, sometimes um, hard to understand because it is very steeped in our culture um, and in our history and the pain that we carry as black women. And I think it's important that we just keep shedding light in these dark places. And if people don't understand it, good. You shouldn't understand it. You're seeing something new something you've probably never seen. And I hope people can take a moment to just stay with it, the story, and find some compassion and learn something about the others and about this, I think, very unique point of view that hasn't really been expressed very often throughout our film history. I think it's important just having that representation yes. on screen. Yes. And I know this representation is important because so many people have reached out and said, thank you for telling the story that I relate to. I saw myself. I saw my mother. I see my sister. I see my aunt. Thank you so much for giving voice to uh, somewhat of um, disenfranchised and the marginalized of the world, you know? As you know, this is your direct debut. Very exciting. The thing that I was wondering while I was watching this was how did you do it all? How did you star in this and direct? What did you take from your experience of all your years of being an actress into directing? Uh, I think as a director, I knew how important it was to cast the roles properly, you know, to find actors, to cherry pick actors and take my time and find the right actors for the part. Um, and so I found myself going to some theater actors and actresses and people that I knew not only had the acting chops, but embodied my version of these characters. Like that would make my job indelibly easier as an actor because they were already right for the parts when they started. And then it would be just nuancing them and tweaking them and, you know, playing and doing all the things that we love to do as actors. And I knew it was important to be collaborative with them, hear every single thing they had to say. You know, no one owns the truth. I know as a director, I certainly don't. And I've always loved when directors have come to me and said, let's collaborate on this. Here's how I see it, but how do you see it? And that we find a way forward together, you know? Um, so I made sure um, that I did that with the actors and created a safe space and a camaraderie and a freedom uh, for them to perform. I think one of the standouts from the cast besides you is Sheila, a team. Yes. And she was amazing. I think your scenes were her, with her were just fantastic. What was it like shooting those? And also, how did you find her? 
Yeah, Sheila Atim was was a treasure. I mean, she was the first um, actor I cast in the movie, and I thought the hardest character to cast. You know, that character had to be otherworldly to me. If you're going to carry the name Budokan, you better be a Budokan, right? And so she just carried that seamlessly. And um, coming from the stage, as she does, of course, she's wildly trained and talented, and she's got a subtlety about her performance um, that was really beautiful and very simple in her delivery of everything. And all, all the characters really found the truth of these characters. None of them were afraid to lean into what was being asked of them by the script or what I would ask of them as the director. They were all willing to go very far and try and explore, realizing that it's only, you know, a take and that um, I think they felt they could trust me. Speaking of trust, you have a very beautiful love scene with Sheila. And as an actress, you've been in a few of those. What did you want to bring to the scene as a director and as an actor that might be different from how you've been directed in love scenes in the past? Well, for me, for the love scene with Sheila, I just wanted to bring a sensitivity to it and a femininity to it. Because what the scene was about was my character, Jackie Justice, realizing that she needed love and tenderness and understanding like the air to breathe. And it almost didn't matter where it was coming from or who was giving it to her. She was going to take it because she needed it, you know, to, to live. That's what it felt like. She needed to be seen and heard and loved and valued. And um, she needed to release all of that guilt. So I wanted that scene to be uh, very tender, very soft, very feminine. Um, and I didn't want it to feel exploitive in any way, you know, which is why we only see what we see. It was really as... Um, emotional as it was sexual. And that's what I was hoping to get out of that scene. A real connection on all levels, not just a physical release, but an emotional connection that I think she needed to actually end, end up staying in that fight. When you did our cover story a few mm -hmm. months ago, we paired it with a really entertaining, engrossing conversation with you and Spike Lee. Yes. What did you take from him as a director uh, for Bruce? I understand he saw an early cut of the film. And what was that process like as far as getting his feedback? He was, he and Warren Beatty were the first two director friends that I showed it to. And, you know, they, two people couldn't be more diverse than those two. So I thought this will be good. And they both really loved it. And they both affirmed me. And Spike said, oh my God, you're a filmmaker. You're a, you seem, you're a natural. You sh I hope you're going to make more film. And like to hear your, uh, you know, Spike has been a mentor of mine. He was directed me in my very first film. So to hear someone I so wildly respect who has been in this business for so long, affirm me that way and tell me I did good was huge. I felt like, okay, I've already won. Spike Lee and both Warren said, you know, well done. So it was, it was a really good, a, a re really good feeling for sure. I knew we learned a lot of what Spike's response was, but I didn't know about Warren. Did he have any specific notes to help you out? Yeah, Warren kind of said the same thing. He was just, I think, didn't know what to expect from me as a filmmaker. Uh, hadn't really been up to what I'd been, you know, into lately. So he wasn't so sure, but I think he was also um, surprised. And he did offer me some advice, though. He wanted, he told me, you should make clear, clearer from the beginning what MMA fighting is. Not everyone knows because he didn't really know what it was. And so I thought that was a good note to make, make more clear what the world was and that was a very good note because I'd been living in this world for five years and then three years preparing the movie and so he um, gave me great advice to, and he reminded me that, that not everyone is as entrenched in this as you are. 
As this is the Awardist podcast, I was wondering if there are other performances or films that you've been admiring or enjoying this season. Unfortunately, I've been on this press tour. I've <laughs> <laughs> got my eye surgery done, so I'm hoping to spend the holidays like really digging in. But I can tell you the things that I'm very excited to see. I'm excited to see West Side Story. I'm excited to see um, Lost Daughter. Maggie Gyllenhaal is someone I wildly respect. I did a movie with her dad, Stephen Gyllenhaal, when I was very young. Um, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to passing. I did. An, I was on an interview panel with Rebecca Hall, um, and I'm very excited to see what they did. I want to see um, the harder they fall. I mean, I want to see everything. Um, honestly, I want to see Tick Tick Boom. You know, I just want to go after you know in a couple days and just get my popcorn with my kids and enjoy christmas and just watch uh, so many movies out this year so um i just want to watch them all i'm excited and there's so many women and female directors and stories written by women starring great women like i'm excited i'm excited for that is there anyone on your own team that you would want to shout out I want to thank my entire crew. This movie was made on a very small budget and my entire crew got asked to go above and beyond um, what they could even imagine they'd be asked to do on a daily basis. And I have to say, I had people that would take a bullet for me. They were ride or dies for me and the crew, my crew and the actors, the actors too, they were ride or dies. They were there in full support and I will forever be gr grateful. You only get to have a debut once you know, and they all made it as special um, as I would ever hope it to be. So I, I would thank every single, every single one of them, actually. Thanks, Hallie, for stopping by. Bruise is currently on Netflix. And that's it for this episode of The Awardist. If you like what you heard, subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at ClarissaNYC1 and Josh Rothkoff. We'll see you next week. This episode of the Awardist podcast is hosted by Clarissa Cruz and Josh Rothkoff, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, executive produced by Shana Krokmal, edited and mixed by Sammy Junio and Lauren Klein. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>